Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Monday, January 23rd, 2006, 24-year-old Jennifer Kessie never made it to work. Surveillance footage held a major clue, but unfortunately, that all-important clue was still hidden within the footage. Stick with me on that. It will all make sense later. This is the case of Jennifer Kessie. Jennifer Joyce Kessie was born May 20th, 1981 to Drew and Joyce Kessie. Her mom, Joyce, recalls in an interview that Jennifer was always a go-getter and driven and that she was very smart. She goes on to explain that Jennifer spoke in sentences at around a year old. She loved to learn, and she was inquisitive, too. Joyce also describes Jennifer as captivating in her interview for ID Discovery Channel's Disappeared. Jennifer grew up near Tampa, and she graduated from Gaither High School in Odessa, Florida in 1999. She was involved in many things. She was involved in nine student activities, to be exact, and part of that was running track and the National Honor Society. The principal of Gaither High School at the time that Jennifer attended tells Tampa Bay's WTSP, their CBS affiliate, that she was a popular, well-liked student with good grades and a promising future. And she wasn't wrong. Jennifer went on to attend the University of Central Florida in Orlando. It's there that she became a member of the AD Pi sorority. She graduated from UCF in 2003, which thereafter she received several job offers. Jennifer decided to take a financial analyst position with Westgate Resorts, which kept her in Orlando, Florida. She was promoted three times at Westgate Resorts within her first year working there. Another exciting thing that Jennifer had going on in her life was her relationship. She met her boyfriend, Rob, at a restaurant, and they had been together for about a year by the time the case starts in January 2006. Rob and Jennifer had a long-distance relationship, though, because he lived about four hours away in Fort Lauderdale. That didn't stop the relationship from progressing, though. On January 22, 2006, the pair had just returned from a trip to St. Croix. And this was actually a really big trip for the pair because Jennifer met his family for the first time. The pair really did seem to have a great time, and that didn't stop Jennifer from checking in multiple times with her own family, though, during this four-day trip. 
This is really telling when you consider that it's 2006. You didn't just have free roaming on your cell phone, and it was very expensive to make international calls. Really, no matter how you were doing it, whether it was from your cell phone, from the resort, these things were really expensive. And it's just telling that she was still connecting to her family while she was gone. After returning to Florida Sunday, January 22nd, Jennifer stayed the night at Rob's house before she would be heading to work the next day. The next day being Monday, January 23rd, 2006. For those of you listening, that means Jennifer drove the four hours it takes from Rob's house in Fort Lauderdale to her condo in Orlando before her workday even began. Yes, so Jennifer would have made the four-hour drive on that Monday morning back to Orlando. After work, Jennifer headed home to the condo that she had just purchased. Her neighborhood did have some rough patches, but the area was considered to be on the up and up. And with that being said, her condo was actually newly renovated. It was in a complex that was created from converted apartments. As Jennifer purchased, moved in, and continued to start a life in her new condo, there was still a lot of construction going on in the area and specifically in her complex. That's something really important to remember when it comes to this case. Now, Jennifer was a shopper, and one of the things she loved most about her new condo was that it was right across the street from a new mall called Mall at the Millennia. Getting more back to our timeline, Jennifer spoke to her little brother, Logan, on the phone as she drove home from work. Um, She was super close with Logan, and, you know, Jennifer was really, as we can tell from her four-day trip in St. Croix, she was in touch with her family a lot, and her family was still just outside of Tampa, about 90 or so minutes away. More importantly, these check-ins for Jennifer were just a part of her normal safety routine. Hey, it's another day, and I'm okay, are you okay, kind of thing. I think a lot of our listeners can understand and even relate to Jennifer having this personal safety checklist of sorts. We live in a world that can be really scary at times. You know what? Jennifer's parents would agree. Her parents expressed that the want to instill safety into their children is because they were held up at gunpoint before their children were even born. And again, because of this experience, they wanted to make sure that once they had kids, that they would teach them everything possible that they could about safety. And this is, again, all expressed in an interview. Jennifer's father gives his approval to these safety checks that Jennifer had by saying, quote, to this day, Jennifer is probably the safest person I know in the world, end quote. But back to the timeline, Jennifer calls her mom, her best friend, and Rob all before going to sleep on the night of January 23rd. The next morning, Tuesday, January 24th, 2006, Jennifer does not make it to work. Now, Jennifer's boss knows the Kessie family, so he gives them a call to say, hey, this is really weird. Jennifer has not shown up to work. Have you heard from her? You know, anything like that. And they were surprised to hear the news, of course, too. Her mom assures us in her interview that if Jennifer was going to ever be late to anything, she would always call, especially when it came to work. However, that didn't happen that morning. Let's not forget, too, that Jennifer had spoken with her parents the night before, and nothing had seemed out of the ordinary. With this news, her dad decides to give her cell phone a call, and of course his fears were sparking as her phone went straight to voicemail. 
as common with many families, it was an unwritten rule in the Kessie family that if her father or her mother called her, that Jennifer was to pick up that phone or it would worry them. And remember, they did have that experience being held up at gunpoint, um, which made them more prone to worry about her as well. It's important to note, too, that, of course, while times are different now with all the unlimited data and call plans, in 2006, a cell phone really was a safety tool. They were just making their way into the average person's hands. And when someone was calling you, it was usually for an important reason. So that being all tied into why Jennifer was going to be answering the phone when her parents called and why it would be strange that she didn't pick up. What sparked even more fear into Jennifer's parents is that this was the first time that Jennifer's phone had ever gone straight to voicemail when they called, which, as we know, that usually means it's either dead or powered off, and that just was not the norm. It's in this second that Jennifer's dad says, quote, I knew something was wrong, end quote. After fruitless attempts to reach her, her parents contacted Rob. Rob hadn't spoken to her since the night before either, and that was strange because the two spoke every morning. She always either texted or called him before work. On that morning, Rob had actually brushed off the fact that he hadn't heard from her. He says that he just assumed that she was busy, and let's be real, Jennifer probably had plenty on her post-vacation to-do list both at work and at home. After an hour had passed and nobody had heard back from Jennifer, the family decides to make the drive to Orlando. Remember, this is about a 90-minute drive. On the way to Orlando, her father calls the manager of Jennifer's complex, and he asks the manager to check to see if her car was there in her spot, which was spot number 2226. The manager lets them know that Jennifer's Chevy Malibu was not in its spot. The family arrived to Jennifer's condo at about 3.30, and everything seemed somewhat normal when they arrived. They were greeted by her unpacked suitcase from her recent trip to St. Croix, and the kitchen was clean. Everything looked pretty standard. As they surveyed the condo, it seemed apparent to the family that she had indeed slept in her bed, and she even had outfits laid out. A couple things that stuck out to the family were that her bathroom towel was still damp to the touch. This didn't make sense to her mom because Jennifer would have last used that towel hours ago. She had always left for work around 7.30 or 8 a.m. Jennifer's purse, keys, and cell phone were all gone. They also found the can of mace pepper spray that she always carried with her left behind on her counter. Around this time, the family decides to go ahead and give the police a call. When they arrive, it's a little bit brushed off, and they basically just say, hey, she must have had a fight with her boyfriend or something, and she'll be back. The Kessigs aren't buying that at all, and they decide to move forward with printing missing persons flyers. They had friends and family stand at key intersections around Orlando, and these are intersections that Jennifer would have been using for work and commuting during the rush hour that evening. During this time as well, the family comes to realize some troubling things about Jennifer's complex. More than half the units were unoccupied, so that left for not that many potential witnesses. The security gates of the complex were also being left open to allow for construction crews to come and go with ease. All that being said, someone could have easily marked Jennifer's comings and goings and made it into the complex as they pleased. 
Detectives were finally assigned to the case around 5.30 p.m. By 9 p.m., Jennifer was officially in the system as a missing person. A be-on-the-lookout alert is issued as well for Jennifer and her Chevy Malibu. By Wednesday, January 25th, Jennifer's story was all over the local papers, but there were still no leads. Meanwhile, those that were involved in the search for Jennifer were busy looking for any trace of her. Remember, we don't have her phone, her purse, or her car. We have no trace of Jennifer yet. Then finally, the next day, Thursday, January 26th, Jennifer's Chevy Malibu was found in the Huntington Green apartment complex. This complex was less than a mile from Jennifer's condo. Even though it's close, this area is known to be a little rougher than where Jennifer was living. On top of that, there really was no reason why Jennifer would have ever been there. She didn't know anybody who lived there. She had no reason to have ever left her car there. That being said, they knew when they found her car there that foul play was most likely involved. With this new movement in the case, the investigators decide to call Rob over to the scene where Jennifer's car had been found so that they can take note of his reaction as they open up the trunk. Essentially, they're looking for him to be uncomfortable, stressed, nervous about what they might find in her trunk. It's important to note that the family had only spoken highly of Rob to investigators, but he had admitted that Jennifer and he did argue the last time they spoke on the phone. So again, they wanted to check out his reaction to them opening the trunk. Detectives move forward with this plan and they open up Jennifer's trunk right in front of Rob. Now I'll tell you right now, they found nothing of note inside that trunk. Obviously, the investigator's main goal is to find Jennifer, but this feels especially cruel and traumatizing to do to a missing person's loved one. With all of that in mind, what was Rob's reaction? Now, we always remind our listeners that everyone in these situations reacts in their own way, and there is no right way. For Rob, he was overcome with emotion, and he really was showing that he was a heartbroken boyfriend worried about his missing girlfriend. More than that, he's freaked the heck out that Jennifer could be in that trunk or something that confirms that something terrible happened to her could be in that trunk. In his interview for Disappeared, Rob references a sense of relief at the time once the trunk was open. Now let's talk about the state of the car when they found it. The seat of the car was pushed further back than Jennifer would have had it, and there was a DVD player in the car as well. The car's gas level indicated that it likely hadn't been driven much, which that's not surprising. The complex is only about a mile away, remember? A mile or a thousand miles, we still want to know how her car got there. And luckily, there were surveillance cameras on nearby roofs of the complex where the car had been found. Footage from one of the cameras shows Jennifer's car pulling into the lot and parking. You can see someone getting out of the car, but the image is too grainy to see them well enough to make any kind of identification. The person on the surveillance footage is walking right towards another camera. It's unbelievable what happens, though. The camera captures the driver from the side. They're walking. But because the camera only took pictures every three seconds, in each picture, the person is partially blocked by an iron gate slash fence post, if you will. So the image of the face was unobtainable. The person in question definitely got lucky. You can see part of them but not all of them. And the big clue of who they were 
was still hidden within that video. Here's what we can see from the video, though. The person that had driven Jennifer's car has their hair up in a bun, and they're wearing what Jennifer's dad describes as khaki pants and a white shirt. Her dad also thinks that there seems to be some sort of rubber band around their pant leg at their foot. Maybe this is to ride a bike or perhaps work on landscaping, etc. He feels that the outfit is also similar to what many of the workers were wearing at the time in Jennifer's complex. For Jennifer's mom, when she first saw the video, she actually expressed that she felt that it was an adolescent because she felt that the individual had big feet and long arms. Regardless, they couldn't even be sure if the suspect was presenting male or female based on the footage. Around this time is when police bring in the canines to see what they can pick up on. Bloodhounds ended up tracking from Jennifer's car in the complex from where it was found straight to her complex. Detectives then searched the nearby wooded areas. They were looking for anything that may have belonged to Jennifer. Around this time, they also investigate an ex-boyfriend. He just so happened to be at a bar nearby the night she was last heard from. This boyfriend would often call Jennifer to try and rekindle things, and it was suspicious how he was nearby that last night. It should be said that at the time of the documentary and the detectives' interviews within, they say they weren't ruling anybody out. With that being said, they also investigated many of the workers at her complex. Jennifer had made it very apparent to family and friends just how many workers were always around the complex, and that didn't always leave her feeling very comfortable as a woman with all of the comings and goings, um, and she was also coming and going by herself to her the condo that she lived in by herself. And get this, it was discovered that many of the workers were staying in the empty units. Remember, this complex was less than half occupied at the time. Unfortunately, finding many of these workers proved difficult for investigators because many of them had an undocumented status and were afraid of the police activity surrounding Jennifer's case. However, they were able to locate and verify hundreds of the workers with documented status, and they were able to rule all of them out. Next up, they fixated on a married man from Jennifer's work that was overtly interested in her. Like, it was not a secret around the office how much he was into her, and he would always make advances towards her, and he asked her out excessively. That's a whole nother beast that we can't unpack here, but anyways, his reaction to hearing that Jennifer was missing was, quote, well, she must have been eaten by gators by now, end quote. There's more. He was late to work the day she went missing. He ends up being cleared, though, because it comes out that he was late because he got a speeding ticket and he was arguing with the officer. The situation actually ended up with him in jail, according to Jennifer's father. How long or anything like that, I don't know. But from what we do know, this guy is a piece of work. The weeks roll into months and Jennifer was still missing. A tip does come through that somebody had seen who they thought was Jennifer in a white truck, but... That tip died too. I can't even imagine what the Kessies were going through at this time. New Life was brought back into the case again in 2008. A construction worker from Jennifer's complex was accused of statutory rape. He did admit to working on her condo specifically. He says that she let them into her condo to do some work and then just said, lock up on your way out. Jennifer would often come home on her lunch break when she needed to let workers in, 
However, her dad argues that he was on the phone with her one of the times that her condo was having work done to it specifically. And he argues she did not do that. Like she never told anybody, just lock up on your way out. And these situations with workers in her home were no exception for Jennifer's safety checks. Her father continues his argument by saying that anytime workers were in her condo specifically, that she would be on the phone with somebody while they were in there, much like she was the day that he's referring to that he was on the phone with her. Another thing of note during this avenue of the case is that the man did submit to and pass a polygraph test. An effort to keep Jennifer's name out there and possibly generate new leads, her family made playing cards with Jennifer's information on them. They sent 100 decks to jails and prisons for inmates to play with. Lo and behold, they got a hit. It was from an inmate on death row. And he saw Jennifer in the deck of cards, and he asked to speak to her father specifically. He said he'll only give info to Jennifer's father in a face-to-face meeting. Now, her father, Drew, was more than willing to have this meeting. What's disheartening in this instance is that this particular inmate had tried to pin crimes on another inmate before. Authorities warn Drew of this, and they say, when you're speaking to this inmate, if he mentions this other specific inmate and tries to pin Jennifer's missing status on him, then it's game over and he's lying. Drew goes into the meeting. He's prepared with this information and guidance. And yes, the inmate mentioned that other inmate and the lead died. This was such a hard blow for the family. Their emotions were toyed with and police and Drew's time were totally wasted. More leads have come and gone with no sign of Jennifer. Drew believes that perhaps she's been trafficked. And according to Sergeant Brady from Orlando PD, a major trafficking ring had been taken down around the time she went missing. So Orlando isn't unfortunately immune to the horrors of trafficking. Over the years, the Kessies have helped create four laws in the state of Florida pertaining to issues related to Jennifer's case. A scholarship was also created in Jennifer's name. It's called the Jennifer Kessie Criminal Justice Endowed Scholarship, and it was created in 2011. It supports criminal justice master's students at Jennifer's alma mater, UCF. Four or so years ago, the Kessies settled a lawsuit with the Orlando police to allow them to receive all the documents in Jennifer's case. The family had hired a private investigator that they wanted to get access to these files. But according to one of our resources, they can't really act too independently from the police department for a lot of reasons that Natalie and I just aren't experts on. On January 20th, 2002, Drew says in a GoFundMe page update, quote, here's where we are. Almost four years ago, we came to an agreement with the Orlando Police Department that they would, over the period of four months, generate a digital file of Jennifer's case and give it to us at the requested cost of $18,000. We paid the price in full up front. That four-month agreement has turned into three years and 10 months, end quote. The Orlando police give a statement as well, saying, quote, the Orlando Police Department remains committed to finding the answers to the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie. Despite our 16-year commitment, there are some cases that remain difficult to solve. Since our agreement to produce the documents on this matter, we have worked closely with their counsel and have turned over thousands of pages of documents and hours of recordings for their independent team to review and investigate. Our hearts continue to go out to the entire Kessie family, and our detectives will continue to investigate any new lead, end quote. 
That being said, the Kessies have not given up hope that they will find Jennifer. Her father, Drew, says, quote, that's our job, to make everyone in the world know that Jennifer Kessie is still missing, end quote. Her mom says, quote, evil stole Jennifer, but evil will not steal her memory from any of us, end quote. And we here at The Murder Diaries hope that this episode keeps Jennifer's memory alive and reminds everyone that Jennifer Kessie is still missing. That's where we'll leave it for this episode. The Kessie family's GoFundMe is in the show notes if you'd like to donate or help their cause as they continue their now 16-year search for their daughter. Until the next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries pod on TikTok and Instagram, at the Murder Diaries pod at gmail.com and the Murder Diaries podcast.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing. Your five stars mean everything. And until then, stay safe. Bye.